I tend to write stream of consciousness. I, I don't do a lot of outlining or planning. I just sit down and then write. Sometimes I have an idea of like a structure, like, well, okay, we've got to have him show his work. Um, but then I just, in my first draft, I just start writing and, and the music thing or whatever, you know, it's, and I, it's, I just flow. Ideas happen in the moment as I write them. He just flows. That's Scott Alexander Hess, and he is my guest today on Behind the Pros, and I am your host, Keisha Whitaker, who has been MIA for a little while, but I am back. I want to say thank you to Scott for his patience. I did this interview with him in July, and I'm just getting it to it to it now because actually after I interviewed him, like everything went kind of crazy. I ended up looking for an apartment unexpectedly, which took a couple months. And then I got a dog right after I got a new apartment, which may or may not have been the best, smartest decision. And then I started a semester in which I was teaching um, a number of different classes and a class I really probably shouldn't have been teaching. And everything went to shit. So I kind of put the show on the back burner I gotta admit, I had already been thinking about putting it on the back burner because I'm always focusing on 7,000 different things. And for years, I felt like Jill of all trades, master of none, right? Or maybe it's mistress of none. Uh, not mistress. But anyway, so the show has been on pause and I've been thinking about it, and while I've been thinking about it, I've still been writing, and I had the honor to attend at the great Donna Tallarico's invitation to be on her, one of her panels at Hippocamp 17. She runs the creative nonfiction magazine Hippocampus, and Hippocamp is her annual creative nonfiction writers conference. This year it was held in Lancaster, and I, at that conference, when I went on the Sunday, I met two women who said they listened to Behind the Pros. So it was really cool to actually meet someone in the flesh who was not my friend who listens to the show of their own accord. Uh, so shout out to Michelle and Patricia. It was really cool to meet you guys. And I hope you're still listening because the shows are going to start populating your iTunes feed right now. So I, I've still been doing my chunks of 20, even though it's slowed down, you know, during the summer, I'm picking it back up. I am now on a new chunk. I have a couple acceptances from the writer magazine for next year. So that was part of the last chunk. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Chunks of 20, please check out the 2016 issue of the Writer Magazine, uh, September 2016, in which I write about uh, calculating your acceptance rates and how I figured out I get accepted about 14% of the time. So I need to work in chunks of 20 to get two yeses. So that's the September 2016 issue. Order it at writermag.com. Plus, I got two articles this year, uh, well, three actually, four. Okay, the last two that you need to know about are the September 2017, When Disaster Strikes Your Book Release, and the October 2017 issue I wrote about Hickey's Hiccups in Homework, part two. I tell you in that essay what happens when I call Barnes & Noble after a friend sees Hickey's Hiccups and Homework, my self-published book, in the clearance bin in Barnes & Noble this January. So, and if you read the first part of the essay, you know it was supposed to be out of print. So, October 2017 issue, get it at writermag.com and you'll find out what happens. Scott Alexander Hess is a writer of literary historical fiction. I interviewed him a couple of years ago when I read his novel, The Butcher's Son, which I love. And I have to say, over the years, that is one of the books where I will think about scenes um, on occasion. They'll pop into my head. And so I was happy to talk to him this July. We talked about his novella, Skyscraper, which actually came out last summer, summer 2016. And 
And funny thing about this is, no, the novella, he wrote it while he was on a break from writing another book. Like, who writes a book on a break? If you want to know how it's done, all you got to do is listen to the rest of this episode because Scott Alexander Hess is going to tell you all about it. And yes, you have to say his whole name, Scott Alexander Hess, because it sounds good. So right now, here's Scott Alexander Hess. And how long had you been working on that book? Um, not very long. I actually... Um... You know, The Butcher's Sons was a little more of a literary historical novel. And I had started working on my next book, The River Runs Red, which is another historical uh, novel set in St. Louis in 1890 about an architect. But I was getting stuck, so I took a break um, and wrote Skyscraper um, about a modern-day architect and more about a, you know, an obsessive relationship and... Um, so it was kind of an interim, uh, project or I just, I needed to shake myself up and get out of, uh, historical and into modern day. And, you know, it was kind of an exercise and then it turned into a short novel and, um, the publisher of the butcher sons liked it and wanted to publish it. And then, and so there it is. And then I moved back to. The River Runs Red, which is now, I have now completed. So that book, probably a year I spent writing it. Um, but it was an, you know, it was an interesting process as to how it came about. I love that you said you gave yourself sort of an exercise to kind of get right. rest from the previous book. Um, when you set out on doing that exercise, did you... No, oh, I, this is. I'm going to write a short novel, or just when did you realize that that's what this was becoming? Um, well, I, I'm in a weekly writing group. It's the same group I've been meeting with for years uh, after graduate school, so I get a lot of feedback. Um, it probably really not until I finished it. Um, I just I'm always writing. I teach. I write. I read. I'm always writing. So. Um, when I got stuck with the research and the heaviness of um, the writing of the historical novel, I just started writing something modern. And I guess after a few chapters, you know, I just was submitting to my writing group. And um, and then at a certain point, it, it kept growing. And um, with their feedback, you know, I... Um, I guess partway through I realized, well, it's not a short story. It's moving more to novella. And then, um, you know, novel length, it's short, but it, it's with reaching up there to, like, short novel length. And, um, and you know, so it emerged. It, it kind of evolved over a period of months. And then I realized that it was like, okay, this is a, a short novel and, yeah, but I didn't, That it was an unusual book because I didn't set out, you know, I'm writing yet another novel right now and it's very in my mind that, okay, this is my intergenerational novel and I've been working on it over a year and I'm, you know, it. I have a goal. Mm -hmm. But Skyscraper was, didn't really have a goal. It was more, I wanted to keep writing, I wanted to keep my brain active and I needed a break from, um, you know, in writing historical novels, you can sometimes get caught up in all the research, especially for me, it was 1890 in St. Louis, and um, it required a lot of research because I, you know, there was a lot of things I didn't know about that time period. So it was kind of a break, a, a, an easier break to say, ooh, let's write about Manhattan current day, Um you know, and then it turned into Skyscraper. So when you were approaching it, you know, as a break, did you mm -hmm. sit down, did you have a schedule that you were writing on with it? And um, if you didn't, did it turn into one when you realized, uh, you know, turn into oh, a schedule? Yeah, once I, um, initially it did not. It, I just um, wanted to keep my writing muscles um, sharp, 
So I was writing for a month or two um, this new story. Um, at a certain point, uh, as I was getting feedback from my writing group and it was evolving and I was getting more immersed in, in the book and involved in it, and um, then it became um, on schedule as in like, oh, okay, I'm actually, this is turning into a novel. Um, and I was reading um, the French writer Patrick Modiano, a uh, missing person, and he's written some amazing books. Um, and they're short, and they're, they're, they're profound, but they're simple. Um, I was reading a lot of him at the time, so that was influencing me, um, especially the second half of the novel, which gets a little more mysterious. Um, so I was being influenced by Odiano and his kind of spare style, yet, um, I mean, his books are really incredible, but they're also um, uh, simple in in some ways, like simple um, in language. They're usually about searching for identity, and they're always in, in Paris. Um, but so that was in, uh, inspiring me at the same time. So I think it, that was... Too at some point I was like, oh yeah, look at this novel. It's 140 pages and um, modern, and I thought, oh maybe I'll maybe that's what I'll do. The first line of the book is just so poetic and arresting, and it does have that quality, as you said, of just kind of being clean and simple. Um, the mm -hmm. first line is standing near the window at dawn in a strand of lilac light, he undressed, and so right. my question is. Where did that first line come from? Is that where you started the book, and or how did you get to that point? Um, no, that was more like in the second paragraph. Um, I think I had started it with, um, oh, some line like, um, he treated me cruelly, and I, I don't know what it was, you know, something like that. It was more about the, the older man's um, feelings. Um, and so that, that book did go through a, a good deal of line-by-line line and page-by-page page revision um, because it, it did, the, after the first paragraph, more about the narrator. Like he treated, uh, he was younger than me and treated me cruelly or, you know, it was some other uh, series of lines about, more about the narrator. And then I went into that line where he's standing there undressing in the window. And through revision and with my writing group, it just made more sense to, well, no, let's just start with the best image. Let's start right away with really what the book's about is this muse inspiration. So I cut out all the other lead up and just said, let's just start right in it. You know, he's in the window, he's undressing. Because that image, that moment is really... Uh, what the whole book is about. It's what begins his, the narrator's journey. It's his creative awakening. It's his muse. It's, it what, it's what begins the whole flow of the narrative, which is the change in his life. And the narrator, whose name is Atticus, within those first mm -hmm. few chapters, which are also short, um, we begin to see that he's hyper aware of his disintegration or, or what he felt to be his disintegration of his um, creative abilities in being an architect since he was at Princeton. Mm -hmm. And that chimes back throughout the few chapters and he'll reference it. Maybe it was because of the drinking or he just didn't have this or that anymore. Did you on revision go back in and add in moments for him to reflect on how he was no longer the same, or did that come organically? Um, some of it was, the thrust of it was, was organic, but I did in revision go back. Um, I got some feedback again from an editor and from my group um, to add a little more about where he came from. So, like, there's a sequence um, uh, where he's back in Princeton and he and his friend go out and he finds a bird frozen in the ice. And so I added um, a little more what 
he had been like to contrast to, well, well how did he land here now? Um, you know, feeling um, spent and kind of used up. So the revision was a little more of that, a little more of like, well, what, you know, did he have any success or where was he from or what was Colette Princeton like? And, you know, so those little bits were added in the first part um, to give that reflection. And if I'm not mistaken, the book covers a span of like, it's it's short, it's like a week, right? Or maybe two? Um, in the narrator's life? Longer because in that, um, it's, it is a short period of time, but it's a bit longer than that because um, there's, there's the relationship, but, and then they go away, and then the 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 um, well, I won't give too much away for possible readers, but um, there is a change in evolution. He has to go looking for the the lover, and so yeah, it is a short amount of time, though, a little more than that, though. Okay. Um. So I'm looking here at some of the notes that I have, and I'm always fascinated with novelist how you were able to put together the scenes and I'm thinking of the dinner scene and all the characters um, have mm -hmm. their own sort of quirks and you can sort of, sort of see them placed around the table and then there's this one scene where Atticus brings in his um, his his drawing to the meeting the, this the architect with the, mm -hmm. the building and his is on paper in contrast to this other character who is also submitting a design, and his is on his iPad. So Adam right. tries to roll out his paper, and it keeps rolling back up. And right. I just, and then the, the guy takes his shoes and he puts it um, on the edges of the paper. So I just wondered about that detail. Is that something that, like, when you're writing a scene, are you thinking of things that, oh, this can happen in terms of the physical sense and then this could happen or oh this would likely happen like how does something so specific like that arise um that is pretty organic as you mentioned before um i tend to write stream of consciousness i i don't do a lot of outlining or planning i just sit down and then start and then write you know and i kind of Sometimes I have an idea of like, okay, they need to present their, uh, an idea of structure. Like, well, okay, we've got to have him show his work. Um, but then I just, in my first um, draft, I just start writing and, and the muses sing or whatever, you know, it's, and I, it's, I just flow. Ideas happen in the moment as I write them. And, and all that with the man and his shoes and that whole thing, it all just happened as I was writing. It was, you know it being in the character of Atticus and then said, I don't know, it all just kind of, that's how my writing works in general. And then it's in the revision process where sometimes I look back and um, say, hmm, okay. Uh, particularly if it's not clear um, or it's overdone or, um, you know, it's, it's, becomes clunky or, or the scene doesn't make sense or something like that, then I start revising. Um, but in general, the first run through and details like that tend to come in the moment, you know, writing in the moment, just placing myself in the scene and letting things happen. Throughout the I mean, from the very first chapter, you have this, I mean, it's it's really, you, you mentioned the mystery aspect in the end, but from the very beginning, the reader is kind of in a mystery, like, well, who is this character, um, Tad? Like, who who is he? What does he want with the narrator? Um, and that get pulls through until the we get to the, um, the narrator and Tad, as you said, they go away to a quote-unquote business gathering <laughs> right right it turns out to be something else and um and then later on when we so i again struggling with trying not to give too much away but 
when mm-hmm. one of the main characters, Taylor, who is this key investor, says something to Atticus that references a specific action that Tad did. And when I read it, immediately before the next sentence, my mouth dropped. And then that's what the narrator says, like things slowed down, but his mind jumbled. And so I wondered in your writing group, did people give you feedback that, or confirmation that this was the point that the reader would also be completely shocked as shocked as the narrator is? Yeah, they, they did. And they do, they tend to, um, it's a good, our writing group is also, we have a variety. I've got, a, you know, fiction writers and nonfiction. Um, so not everyone is a dedicated novel reader. Um, so it always has a good point of view. Uh, I'll often get a pretty honest um, reaction to especially dramatic moments or moments like that, either in that, oh, wow, this is surprising, or... Um, Also in, um, because there are moments in the book that are, that are a little confusing, are mysterious, are on, on, a a lot of uncertainty. And so, um, that would be important that my readers, you know, in my writing group would, um, would, uh, voice that, would say, wait a minute, what just happened? Where are we going? I'm confused. Um. Because I would want to create confusion. Uh, I guess the thing I always, when I write something like that, what I'm trying to balance is maybe I want the reader not to know and to be guessing and to be a little bit confused as in what the heck is happening here, but not to the level of, you know, stepping out of the book or losing the reader or like, what the hell? And, and that they stop reading. So there's always that balance. Um, and my writing group is very helpful with that, you know, because uh, a reaction that is like, wow, what just happened? As opposed to, you know, um, what? You lost me. Where are we? I don't know what's going on. Um, so that can be, you know, in the process, that's always very helpful. When you're reading, you get the sense, or I got the sense, um, that things started to go well for Atticus and Tad, and his project was getting picked up at work, and it seemed like things were turning for him. And as a reader, I'm like, oh, this can't be good. (laughs) Things are going too well for him. And then it's like literally just before the point where he kind of references that himself in the narrative. So I just, I had a lot of little moments like that where... um, I, I would get sort of validation from the narrator about what he was feeling or what might be coming his way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, I think in this book, um, since it's one central narrator, uh, a lot of my books have multiple points of view are um, several characters, main characters you're following. Well, this is, Mostly, the, you know, is, is one, really, the central narrator. So I do think I want the reader to be at a similar pace on the journey as Atticus and discovering as Atticus does. Um, and then when the mystery happens and Atticus is lost and doesn't know what's going on, um, it's meant to be that, you know, that the reader is too. So, yeah, I think that, that the... Um, the pace of that, you know, the what the narrator's discovering, the reader's discovering, too. So we get to the end of the book, and how do I say this without giving anything away? Um, so by the end, we know that Atticus goes on this quest, and... As a reader, I feel like I had many different, um, I guess, I, I don't know if emotions is the right word, but many different, maybe emotions is the right word, of ways I thought that this was going to play out for Atticus, or like what he should do, or things he should ask, and things he should say when he finds um, Tad, and he finds Tad, and they're still, even in that moment, there's more 
mystery. There's things that we still don't know about Tad, but Atticus comes to a place where I guess he is acceptance of what whatever that is about Tad. And we don't really know what exactly is going to happen next. We don't know what's going to happen with the project. Um, Randy's still outside somewhere. <laughs> and right. So I wondered, how do you arrive at an ending, especially of a novella, when you're, cut, you're, you're ending at points when there are still many, probably more things that are unresolved? Right. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I, um, I wanted, you know, the arc of the journey I felt was from where, in a simple way, was he was at his bottom, you know, he was, he was, um, on the skids, and this thing happened, this man entered his life, and it, it arced up, it had this journey, and then this dark thing happened, and then he kind of, it kind of came back again, um, and I guess by, I wanted to leave the, the work life and the, I guess that the, the relationship with the person was ultimately what became more important. And the, for the narrator, Atticus, the relationship with his, himself, um, was what was most important. So I kind of left the, some of the elements like the job, the project on the side, which in the beginning of the book seemed like what was saving him and that seemed the most important. But then as things went awry, and ultimately at the end, it was that his relationship with himself and then with another person was more, it's almost like a, a begin, a new opening, uh, like from where the book ends, now suddenly a new, a whole new chapter would begin, a whole new, where's he going to go in his life? It's almost, where he begins at a down place and opens up to something new, and then by the end of the book, he's come to yet another new place, which is different, um, in relationship to himself and his, um, this other person. And so he said, yet another opening point, but it could go in a completely different direction. Um, and I had originally had a, um, uh, an epilogue, um, and we got rid of it. Um, an editor had made a point that, you know, no, don't, don't tie it up with a little epilogue because mm -hmm. um, I had placed them um, together in the future. Um, and the editor suggested, you know, so, well, I don't really think you need that. You know, let it end at this kind of moment of coming together mm -hmm. and then leave it and let the reader wonder or think in their own minds like, hmm, I wonder where they go or where may they go next as opposed to solving it mm -hmm. for the reader. Mm -hmm. um, so I went with that. I was like, yeah, I think that's a good point. So. I was yeah. very intrigued by the Eva character. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things, just her voice, her, her kind of wit, her <laughs> drunken druggedness. <laughs> right. Um, and so I wondered about the inspiration for that character. Did she just pop up, or did you consciously know you needed to bring her up for some reason? I think she's a composite of people I've met. I wanted a interesting female character, because um, this particular book is, well, a lot of my work has a, a strong uh, themes of masculin masculinity and the butcher's sons. The new book I'm writing is called The Root of Everything, and it's the... Um, three generations of men. So I do uh, cover a lot of um, a lot of masculine topics. And I wanted in this book to have an interesting, um, you know, flawed and colorful and um, powerful uh, female character. Um, I did work in publishing and met some interesting editor-type women like Eva. Um, so... I think subconsciously I had a few different people in mind of like, um, you know, fun, fashionable, colorful, hard-drinking, smart um, women in publishing. Um, and then she just kind of emerged, you know, and, and as she did, as I, as I said, as I write, you know, I just kind of start writing and 
poof, they pop out. Um, but yeah, she, I had different, um, I'd worked at Fairchild Publications once and there was this colorful, um, older woman who was an editor and, um, you know, there was different people that I think contributed little bits and pieces to, to creating Eva. Was there any part of the book that gave you, I gave you maybe, I don't know if trouble is again the right word, but kind of that you had to wrestle with for a while and what was that problem and how did you deal with it? Um, I, I do think, um, there were a few, um, with this book. It, it was an odd, it's an odd book in a way. As you, as I mentioned, it didn't even start as something I thought I would turn into a novel and publish. Um, I, there's a number of things, um, you know, they're in, uh, an S&M relationship. I wanted this intense um, form of a sexual relationship to really, I wanted to choose something that was, that felt extreme. Um, so, but I also wanted to continue, I write literary, historical, or, you know, poetic fiction, and I wanted to, um, you know, continue with that type of work, and yet include this uh, intense, obsessive S&M relationship. So I did have to balance, well, how do I allow the sensual elements to come through um, and be pure and, and, you know, I did research, um, pure, realistic, honest with that, um, but keep it, uh, keep it literary. So that was something I had to be very aware of um in 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 scenes and depicting things in language um so i worked on that and i did get feedback from an editor you know um on that specifically i said now you know i want this strong sensual element to come through but i also want it to remain literary so let's keep an eye on that um and then the other thing was the, uh, you know, halfway through the novel, um, after the, the hunting party, the getaway, um, and the, the strange mystery and then everything turns and, um, I had all this, uh, you know, kind of dark mystery come in and uncertainty. Um, I had to balance, uh, just kind of like that it didn't get away from me that, uh, again, as I mentioned, finding that fine line where things are unraveling and there's uncertainty and mystery and strange things that you don't quite know what's going on, but maintaining the narrative so that the reader keeps turning pages and wants to resolve. Um, and even in the final um, explanation that Tad gives as to, well, what happened in Mexico? Um, that also is not crystal clear mm -hmm. um, because he was in a uh, drugged state somewhat. Um, so in recalling it, I didn't want him to be crystal clear. And I, I wanted to be a little strange and poetically vague. Um, so that, you know, those at that I, I had to grapple with and, and find the the balance um, so that I could do it the way I wanted to do it, but be aware of um, not losing people or not making it, you know, so vague and dark and poetic and, and that somebody just walks away and says, oh, well, I have no idea what just happened, you know. Um, so those, those were some of the challenges that I faced in this, in putting this book together a few points where Atticus is observing Tad and he hears him on the phone one night and he hears sort of like a childlike quality in his voice and Tad who right. is a complete like dominator control is masculine fighter cage fighter is something completely foreign from what Atticus and the reader is used to 
And um, at the end of the book, um, Tad is placed in a situation that with a family member, by the presence of this family member there and where he is, it sort of brings to mind um, in the reader that, oh, this man, it, it, it softens him in a childlike way. Like, oh, wow, he's at this family member's house. Do you know what I mean? Right. Without trying to give it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Was that intentional in your writing? Yeah, it was. Um, it it was in that um, in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think we all show different sides of ourselves in relationship, especially as they evolve. Um, but Tad represented something kind of a fantasy, a, a hard one-dimensional sort of visual that shook the narrator up and brought him out of his funk and and also this intense relationship. But that type of um, persona um, is never real. I mean, there's always more to it in a human being. So the the purpose of Tad the character and, and to the narrator was this one-dimensional um, sensual being. But in reality... He, of course, was something else. Um, and that's why we, we're allowed to glimpse um, his vulnerability or his, because he's actually young, um, you know, or I think I made him early 20s, um, even though he's dominant and, and everything in the relationship. Um, um, he's a young man, and um, you learn little bits and pieces about him, but, you know, he's a certain vulnerability going on, which is, um, you know, the truth of his humanity and him as a person. And then, as you mentioned, you see that again at the very end, um, when he's with his family member and when he's kind of gone back. Um, so you see, begin to see a little more of who he really is as a person. Um, which again, it's a short novel and we really see everything through the narrator's eyes. Uh, so we don't break out and get to see Todd's point of view, or uh, Tad, or, or get to see, t- you know, Tad as he truly is as a full human being. Um, but so that's why I added, I wanted a few bits in there um, where we see a fuller person and a bit of vulnerability, and which also added a bit of mystery, as in, wait, who is this guy? And this is going to take it back to a little bit of the technical aspect. How how many words is this? It's 128 pages, um, you know, in book form. Mm-hmm. Do you recall how many words the manuscript was? Um, I don't. Um, it must be near 50,000. Um, you know, I'd have to look that up. Um, it was, it, it was, um, yeah, it's 128 in the book. I think it was, it's sent to the, the editor, oh, I don't know, one, 140 pages or something. Um, but it was, you know, and then it trims down a little in, for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, it was pretty on the, on the edge of, um, just on novel length, you know, shortest novel length, like near, I think, 50,000 words. Um, so it was just at the edge. It's kind of between novella and novel, you know. It's not an 80 or 90 page, but it was a hundred, wasn't 175. It was kind of like right on the brink there. Um, so. Yeah. Refresh us again about your writing process. Like, where do you write? When do you write typically? Um, really anywhere and everywhere. Um, I teach uh, novel writing and fiction one at Gotham Workshop in, in New York here. And that's one thing I um, guide students in that to kind of shake up the mystery of, oh, you 
have to write at your computer, or you should write one hour a day, or you have you should write at this time or that time. Um, I always bring up The War of Art by um, Pressman, mm -hmm. um, a short book all about resistance and um, and rules we place on ourselves, and that in reality it's just just simply write. It doesn't really matter. So I write at all different times of day. Um, in all different forms, everything from jotting a, uh, a paragraph on my iPhone to uh, you know, I, have an, I have everything. I've got several notebooks, my iPhone, my iPad mini, um, a PC. So, you know, it's like multiple sources. But when I'm in the midst of writing a book, um, I, I'm really living the book every day for a year and a half. Um, so it's always on my mind, and and you never know when a new idea will come. I keep a notebook at my bedside because, boom, it's one in the morning, and I jot something down. Um, and I do like the iPhone in that I'm stuck on the subway. Mm -hmm. And I because today I've been writing about um, a storm clouds. There's a scene on the porch, and I wanted this coming storm to influence the scene on the porch, so I keep jotting notes and thinking about clouds and I've got like three different sources uh, a notebook my phone something else where I've written about clouds and then I have to start to sit down and think well how, how much am I gonna what am I gonna consolidate where am I gonna write about clouds um, but so that was on my mind the past couple of days so I may be looking at clouds and jotting down notes throughout all over the place and then um, you know and then other times I'll sit down for an hour or two at, at the kitchen table and actually work. And it also depends. Um, in writing a novel, you know, there's like the first draft of it, then there's the revision, then there's segments pulled out and reworked. Um, and there's, uh, I've also, the past two books have had multiple points of view. So um, there'll be, thinking of, you know, doing some writing on one character's point of view and focusing on that. So, um, but bottom line, everywhere and anywhere. Um, and when I'm living it, um, it, it's kind of pretty constant, um, you know, with ideas and, and notions and all that. I know that your students are very lucky to have you. I totally love your writing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And um, have you started shopping the next book yet? Uh, I do. I have The River Runs Red. A few agents are reading it. Um, and uh, but the new book, no. I'm in the midst of it. Uh, the Root of Everything. Um is the one I'm writing now. Um, I'm in the midst of, of writing, rewriting, revising, working with my writer's group. Um, the Rivers Runs Red, it's just sent it to a couple agents, um, and it's taking some time. Usually takes some several months, um, to read and get back. So that's, that's my first step with that. Um, and also just to get some initial reaction. And then from there, I decide next steps um, and where to go with it. But that will be the, it's, um, it's always odd at the timing of things because, again, the War of Art, he said, when you finish one book, the next day you start the next. Or, you know, you just keep writing. Well, that's how I wrote Skyscraper because I was like, well, I've got to keep writing. What shall I do? Um but so I'm always in the mid, like right now I'm really into the root of everything and that's the book and I'm really involved in it. Um, so I kind of forget about The River Runs Red, which I finished last summer or last winter, I guess. Yeah. Um, I get mixed up. And that was, I was so into that. But then I send it to someone and wait a few months for them to read it and have been working on something else. So. I have to look back and say, oh, yeah, wait a minute. What's up with The River Runs Red? we got to get that out there and um, get excited about that one again. Um, and it, it's really kind of the follow-up to The Butcher's Sons because 
it's you know it's a um, historical and um, multiple characters and um, a little more along the lines of that. Um, so I do that, you know, in the uh, the 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 process of my the journey of my work. You know that that's kind of the next book after the butcher's son as as, as a um the next bigger historical novel so and I soon hopefully in the next year hmm. um, go ahead sorry i hear you say that you sharpen it around to agents and i know you have a couple with leaf press at least right um, mm-hmm. and so in my mind i placed you with an agent already so are you changing agents or did you pitch to leaf no press? i've never had an agent Never had an agent. Right. Yeah. Um, I have never had an agent. I started um, my very first novel um, out of grad school. I looked around for an agent um, and got a little feedback, um, but found out about small presses and was very excited to publish. Um and so I went, I found a small press who was interested and published with the small press and then continued. All four of my books have been with, um, first it was JMS Books and then it was Lethe Press. Um, so I've gone that route um, because my experience with agents always kind of slowed things down and I never made a connection or never found the right agent or, or, you know, um, and thus far just, it just made sense. You know, I, I found, I liked Lethe and they, um, he took the butcher's sons and, um, you know, so I had had some experiences. I, there's another book, the jockey, which, uh, was the third novel I wrote. um, set in the 20s and that one is still there and that I guess it was what I went through about a year with a couple different agents and some feedback and a, a process of possibility but nothing ever landed um, and I think that's when I moved to small presses because I was impatient and like well I'm just I, I want to publish so I if this isn't connecting then I'm just gonna go forward um, but then with another book, you know, as something um, as um, The River Runs Red comes forward, um, I I have a friend who has an agent, and she is like, oh, she read it. And she's like, oh, it's great. I want my agent to read it. So I'm like, oh, great, sure. Um, you know, so I see where the possibility goes. Uh, I've had a great relationship with Latte, and we've um, – both of those books have been um, – you know, Skyscraper was up for a Lambda Literary Award, and then um, uh, Butcher Sons was uh, got the, um, I'm blanking, Kirkus Reviews, uh, Best Book. So, yeah, 2015. And so we've both books have done well, um, and I'm very happy with what they press, but it's always good to be aware of, too, you know, what's out there and... and um, with agents and all that. It's a process. I tell my students that, too. Everyone wants to know about publishing. And there's so many choices these days. There's so many options and choices and routes, and there's pros and cons to all of them. So, Well, I am certainly excited to see what route you will take next. Yes. Is the follow-up to The Butcher's Sons going to have any of the same characters, or is it a follow-up in the sense of sort of context content? Yeah, no, just a a completely different book, but a follow-up in terms of um, it's another bigger historical novel. Um, The River Runs Red. It's set in 1890 in St. Louis uh, during the building of the world's first skyscraper, which was the Wainwright building, which my uh, great-grandfather actually worked on, which, and I'm from St. Louis, uh, so that's where it all began. Um, uh, so it's based on historical fact, but 
it's all fiction. I, I fictionalize it all. Um, and also Kate Chopin, who wrote The Awakening, lived in St. Louis at the time. Um, so it, it's the follow-up in terms of similar style and type of book. Um, well, Skyscraper is a very different kind of book. Um, yeah, so The River Runs Red will be the the next, hopefully, the next book book out there. And one of my final my final questions for you. Mm -hmm. You now have four published books under your belt, right? And if you could go back to the very first book and the Scott uh -huh. Alexander has who was writing that book, right? What would you tell that Scott that his literary superpower is that he can draw on that he can use? to get through the next four or three books? Uh, his literary superpower. Well, I, I guess I would tell him don't worry so much and to um, trust your um, the evolution as a writer, that, you know, trust your power of description and setting and character and trust your, um, you know, your writing and your writing style and also let it, evolve and, and, and grow um, and just keep reading a lot and because it really did grow and emerge over time but during that first book I was so worried I was so nervous that I couldn't write a novel and um, I was so de you know determined to make a novel happen um, it, and I it was you know I had to learn by novel three is when I started to get my stride and realize that it's okay. You know, this is, you can do this and trust this and let the stream of consciousness flow. And things began to become a lot more organic because I was trusting a lot more um, and learning a lot more because, um, you know, the things instilled in me in graduate school began to breathe a little more and relax and, you know, I opened myself up to all types of writing and just started to grow much more, which just took time, really. So, You know, one thing I love about this show is just being able to talk to writers and listen to how they persevere and how they figure out who they are as writers. And I want to send a big thanks to Scott Alexander Hess for coming on the show again and for being patient um, until the show was released. Behind the Prose Music is still by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud. The show is hosted and produced by me, Keisha Whitaker, from An Antique Wooden Table in King of Prussia. Until next time, listen, learn, and write.